0: Good evening, Vanessa. No, uh, can't break brand. Hi, Vanessa. <laughs>
1: Hi, Dom. What a good and good evening, tied to you.
0: <laughs> Doing uncertain things. Which, thank you for joining us on a Wednesday. It's like one of the uncertain things S- is what day will our episode air on?
1: What day will I get a vaccine appointment? Which is now a certain thing. It went from being uncertain last night as I was like painfully refreshing pages until like two in the morning, which, you know, for me is very, very un-Vanessa-like hours. But I think I got an appointment today.
0: Congratulations. May your side effects be (laughs) nominal. (laughs) Today, we happily have Batya Ungar-Sargon, who's the deputy opinion editor at Newsweek and formerly the opinion editor at The Forward. And she is soon to release her new book, which is Bad News, How Woke Media is Undermining Democracy. And... As I think I've been preparing you, dear listener, through the past uh, two episodes, this conversation will be the coda to our pseudo-trilogy about why everything is so miserable in the political realm right now, in the political discourse.
1: Is that only a trilogy, though, to be fair?
0: Yes, some might argue (laughs) that it's the entire theme of the podcast, but we did like these three back-to-back conversations that we recorded Mm -hmm. in. We appreciated them for their thematic coherence, or at least what we saw as thematic coherence. It started with Caitlin Flanagan talking about the cultural underpinnings, then moving to conservative commentator Yuval Levine, giving us the institutional background. And now to Batya to talk about the Marxist perspective.
1: But, you know. Because of our own obsessions, we couldn't help but bring media into every single episode of these. So that's that's also a through line. And yes. Ha- to the extent to which the media is to blame across all of these dimensions. And in
0: fairness, that's also the theme of Batya's book. Yes. Which is funny because a lot of the criticism that that she brings up in her articles, which we obviously recommend reading, is directed at this old liberal academic concept of false consciousness, which is a Frankfurt School idea, decades old, trying to explain why is it that the, the, the working class just doesn't seem to vote left in the way that the leftist elite tended to explain it was the workers are brainwashed by the media to vote against their interest. Problem solved. So obviously Batya hates this and calls out bullshit, but it's just, there's something amusing that Batya that and, and also myself to the extent that I agree with her, tend to focus so much on the media from the other perspective. It's just a hobby horse in, I think, American discourse to focus so much on the media and on how the media manufactures the political consciousness of the public. And here we are about to do it again. So we're going to talk about uh, Batya's criticism that the the discourse, especially as guided by the media elites, has supplanted identity politics for real class consciousness. And as a result, and according to Batya, by design, the discourse ignores the people who are really hurt under our current social system. Not least of whom are people of color, and exactly those people the left claims to defend. So obviously, there was a lot we agreed on, and there was a lot we disagreed on. And I, I funnily enough, of all the things that I pushed back on, I didn't push back much on the on the Marxism angle. And I guess that's for next time, but yeah
1: um, yeah and we also have to bring her back to talk about you know Shakespeare so that's <laughs> we've got to unpack that little yes. nugget if you get all the way to the end you'll know what I'm talking about
0: <laughs> absolutely but she but she is wonderful and uh, it, it was an incredibly fun and I think exceedingly inebriated <laughs> conversation at, at, at least for for by yours truly but really it was it was. A fun, weird, free-flowing debate.
1: Yeah, she was super, super nice. Um, really game to <laughs> to just talk about whatever we threw at her. We um, would definitely have her back again to, to talk some more.
0: Also, trigger warning: she was quite, quite Jewish. <laughs> so, if that that's an angle that bothers you about this podcast, I, once Vanessa asked me, "Can we? Is our?" podcast jewish does it reek of the jew no, there's a very specific
1: context for that question that you're completely taking out of out of at the moment
0: we will we have we have to leave it there vanessa we have to leave you're it totally
1: there totally editing, editing this out and everyone's going to be very confused about my my perceptions of our identity and my relationship to jewishness which i guess i'm pretty confused about too
0: spoken like a true anti-semite well with that.
1: Wait, don't we have to tell people to listen to us or follow oh, oh, us yes. on the social medias? Follow
0: and us on uncertain.subsec.com yeah,
1: Whatever your identity or religion
0: But however you <laughs> identify it will be really nice if you could give us five stars on <laughs> Apple Podcasts and um, and we are uncertain pod on Twitter and Instagram if you feel like um, having some, some online arguments and adding to the muck of toxic online discourse We'll be there And with that
1: Adam mostly started reaching out to people that he knew and followed and just was of the kind of ilk of people that don't fall into, like, left or right, but are kind of more um, free-thinking people that can see the the merits and and disadvantages of both types of of thinking. Except,
0: let's be honest, free-thinking is just code word for alt-right nowadays, so...
1: (laughs) I'm so glad you said it. <laughs> <laughs> I
2: was thinking it, but... <laughs> no, I was listening to the interview you did with um, 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 Katie Herzog. And when she was talking about like her moment... Uh, I think a lot of us have our moment where we realize we weren't in the camp that we thought we were in. Or that the camp that we thought we were in would no longer have us. Like that kind of devastating...
0: Yeah, I, I, it's something that... Um, hey, but, yeah?
1: for having me. Welcome to Unserving <laughs> it, it like Things.
0: A, every person who's of a certain age who works in the media at some point reaches a, a similar apprehension i'm really get i'm really not comfortable with some of the things that are happening in my industry right now i feel like this it clashes or is in friction with the 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 ideas that i had of what a journalist is supposed to do and what it means to actually have an open conversation and an open debate <laughs> uh, here's an example the other day i was watching the the wire for, for the first time i've, I've, I've Postponed it for long enough.
1: Oh, no spoilers, Adam. I'm also watching. Wait, it are you guys watching
2: time. it together? You're roommates, right?
1: We're but we're watching? he like sped ahead of me, so I'm still on season two. Oh, the Betrayal. <laughs> I know.
0: <laughs> uh, season five is about the media, and there's a guy there who's supposed to represent the ethical journalist. You have the the sleazy editor-in-chief, you have the suck-up, and then you have the guy who's supposed to be the the ethical guy. And he's his name is Augustus, which is a great name. And so there's just one moment where he says Real A real newsroom is one where people are constantly arguing and shouting at each other. And it's just that that seems quaint now. Seems like there's a push against that. And for people raised on heuristic tendencies and the dialectic, this feels a little icky. So going to you, but Into
1: yeah. that ickiness where uh, we bring our guests. <laughs> uh, I, I'm
2: writing a book. I have written a book about that ickiness, but I I. I failed to use the word icky in the title. And now I feel that I need to rethink all my life choices because that's exactly what it is. It's gross. I mean, what's happened to our industry is gross. And um, yeah, I concur. Uh, I, I, uh, I feel very much in agreement with you that we have to a large extent that the, the media and especially, I don't want to say especially the liberal media, except that um, the left has such a stranglehold on, on culture right now. Um, but um, has abandoned very much the mandate of journalism. From my point of view, you see a lot of it in the conversation and the moral panic around race. But to my mind, you know, what that's really doing is obscuring a more important conversation about class. And a lot of the mainstreaming of a woke culture war is about white liberal affluent elites maintaining power maintaining money <laughs> um, so we can get into that but that is just a summary to say i, I really agree with you there's an ick factor um, and it's not just an fa- it's not just aesthetically disgusting but it's uh, a disaster for our democracy and uh, <laughs> we have to fix it and so i i thank you for 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 leaning into the ick <laughs> and um, and also, hence the title
0: good, of your book, okay. right?
2: Yeah, it's called "Bad News: How Woke Media Is Undermining Democracy." Um, you you could see how it could have so benefited from the word <laughs> "ick." I mean,
0: it's just like <laughs> such a huge.
1: It could have just come at the beginning. Ick. Explanation point. Bad news. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
0: and well, get into all of this, we shall. But first, tell us about yourself. Give us the elevator bio.
2: Oh boy. Okay. Um, Well, I'm the deputy opinion editor at Newsweek. Uh, We are, I believe at this point, the only publication left that is still publishing the full spectrum of legitimate opinion um, from left to right. I don't know anyone else who's doing it. The New York Times has certainly given up. Um, Don't see the right wing publications doing that. Um, and so I work for a very conservative guy, Josh Hammer, who's wonderful and truly believes in debate. And they brought me on to sort of beef up the, the lefty liberal side. I still consider myself to be a lefty, even though the left does not want me anymore. <laughs> Too bad. <laughs> um, and I've been trying to elevate the voices of working class Americans who have been completely deplatformed because Spoiler alert, they tend to be conservative. <laughs> and we can get into that later, you know, uh, why that is. But throughout history, I mean, the left has been sort of dis- run the gamut of disappointment to disgust at the working class's conservatism and unwillingness to follow them to revolution. Um, so
0: trying to be up- Those st- stupid working class <laughs> ignoramuses <laughs> keep voting against their own interest.
2: Exactly. And I really... I really reject that point of view, you know, as a religious person, I feel that, you know, the least among us has the most to teach us. And uh, you really just do not see that. I mean, one of the things that's happened is, you know, through the wokeification of the mainstream media, mainstream liberal media is that um, who, you know, the right point of view has become increasingly narrow and is always changing and is determined by a very tiny elite that wields its power enormously, but through horrible platforms like Twitter. Um, so, so you end up having—I mean, the vast majority of Americans deplatformed. You know, if you and and, and it it ha- it cha- the code changes from day to day. You know, which is part of how they maintain their power, right? Like, if the code were stable, people could be like, "Okay, I know I'm only allowed to say these three things out of the hundred things that I might think about this," but at least I know what to avoid saying. But because it changes every day. And because it's not tied to morality at all, but to power, um, they maintain that power. This kind of um, Twitterati, um, you know. And of course, again, like as religious people, you know, as Jews, like you know, we 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 don't believe that a person's inherent worth has to do with power or where they rank or anything immutable about them. You know, we're all created in God's image. I'm sorry if this is getting too. Uh, <laughs> but you know we believe that that a person's in inher- is, is that human life is infinitely inherently valuable and that we have a common humanity that we must always call back on and that we are all created equal before god and 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 must be made equal before the law and, and it is that view that that's increasingly falling by the wayside and becoming itself you know if they compare it to all i mean we'll get into it but um Gets compared. just believing that now gets compared to like the, war, you know, genocide.
1: So call back to our Tomer Persico episode, Adam, because we had a whole uh, episode with a religious scholar who, I mean, it was all about the image of God. So it's interesting that we're kind of bringing that back, but sorry to your question. That's Adam. yeah.
0: That's, that was our, our launching episode. I, I want to get into we, we, we kind of alluded to that in the beginning of the conversation that, the, that journalists of our, I guess, age, upbringing and, and moral affinities find ourselves at, or found ourselves at some point in, in the past decade really starting to question where they are and where they belong in, in the bigger conversation. I wonder what was the moment for you of realizing you were moving away from your natural camp or vice versa?
2: Uh, okay. Uh, it, it was like in stages and then all at once. So, uh, before I was at Newsweek, I was at the Forward and which is the largest Jewish newspaper in America. And, um, uh, basically, you know, I I felt that I had the same mandate, um, to, 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 to sort of run opinions across the gamut of, um, of legitimate opinion. And, at first, because I'm a kind of known lefty, you know, the left was very excited that I had gotten this job. And then I started running, you know, conservatives because I told the Ford when they were hiring me, I'm not running an opinion section where I can't run conservatives. There's no point. Um, and, and suddenly I noticed like even people who um, I thought were friends, would you start seeing them kind of denouncing you publicly. And it was very shocking. I had never kind of had that before.
0: Do you remember a specific example?
2: You know, um, one of the first things I did when I got to the foreword was um, find, I had like, I think five black Jews writing regularly for me. And I made a Palestinian, a columnist, this Palestinian guy from, from Gaza, who I, the most amazing guy, uh, Muhammad Chihada, just a wonderful person. Then I had I think I ran a settler. Now, before I would run a settler, just like before I would run, you know, somebody on the far left, I called him on the phone and said, all right, let's talk. You know, I'm not platforming someone who doesn't think Palestinians should have civil rights. So let's talk. What what is the what is the end goal look like to you? One always wants to say final solution and then one,
0: <laughs> <laughs>
2: one self correct um, you know, we talked to you said to me, no, why? Give them everyone should have civil rights. I'm not worried about, forget about that. No, give them all rights tomorrow. I don't care. You know, we have room for them. Great. So, you know, I ran him and then, you know, all hell broke loose. And I was like, so shocking. Like, you know, I ran like five anti-Zionists last week. You know, it's like one settler who's saying, hey, we have a different idea about, you know, I think it was about coexistence. And, you know, we're the ones actually living with Palestinians. Like, here's what I've learned from my experience, something like that. And I, I remember being surprised, like, you know, we're clearly tilted to the left because the Jewish community is tilted to the left. And it's part of my view that the opinion section should reflect, you know, the, the community. Uh, we're so tilted in your direction. Like you're you're going to hold this one piece against me.
0: What kind of comments were you receiving?
2: That's a thing. It's like, you would think that a friend would reach out on WhatsApp and be like, hey, why'd you run that? Walk me through your decision. Of course, by the way, my Palestinian friends were all like, it's great to see you doing this. Like, that's how you get him to read me when I write for you. Like they all totally supported it, you know, and you see this a lot. It's like, it's like the anti-Zionist Jews are like more... Fabrents, like a yiddish word whatever they're like more extremist than like pa- this palestinian guy who's actually living you know one of my closest friends actually living under pal- occupation in Hebron. you know like he's the guy saying to me go go you know what i mean do it this is this is how you do it this is how you and because of course i wouldn't do it without his blessing meanwhile they're out there like denouncing it it's just so funny it's always like that you know <laughs> so um but then it really it really blew up um I, around anti-Semitism. So when I started at the Forward, hmm. um, the dividing line in the Jewish community between like far left or, you know, left and liberal was over BDS. You know, did you, the boycott against Israel. Of course, we ran people supporting it, people opposing it across the gamut. Um, by the time I left, the dividing line was whether or not you're allowed to call out anti-Semitism on the left. And if you think that that's important and a value and that the left is worthless, unless it you know unless it too is committed to fighting anti-Semitism, um, it, that became the line at which um, that was no longer acceptable. Um, so you, you saw this around Congresswoman Ilhan Omar um, when she made those comments. Um, you saw this around uh, I mean the Women's March. Uh, you saw it around a lot. Linda Sarsour. Linda Sarsour, and then. When Orthodox Jews were getting assaulted almost daily in Brooklyn in 2019, the vast majority, according to the police, three quarters of the assaults were committed by young um, black teenagers. Um, And if you if 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 you called that, if you said, you know, if you said anything except, oh, look, Trump is (laughs) anti-Semitism is on the rise from all these Trump supporters, (laughs) um, you became the enemy. And that happened to me. and. i I wonder a lot like oh if 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 people who I had considered friends, who I had you know given my platform to, who I tried to elevate hadn't turned on me publicly denounced me, like would I have come to this position? It's like a very hard thing to ask yourself like um
0: and they called you out as what they 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 racist they, racist, an actual every, racist. Day,
2: every day, racist, islamophobic, you hate you know you know. And, and people who work for publications where there isn't a single person of color, you know what I mean? It's like I was, I'm literally still to this day, I run more black, brown, Muslim voices than I do white ones. Not that that, I don't think that is, I'm trying to get past seeing that as, <laughs> it's very woke to think that way. Like, you know, to, to to rely on those immutable characteristics. But of course, it's important to platform the voices of the disenfranchised. And you can you can literally spend your life trying to do that and then get called a racist by... So yeah, they um I became like I was you know they tried to cancel me a bunch of times and um it, it gave me a point of, like it was really I think I mean I think about this a lot but I think it really um, came down to like how can you ask me to not talk about anti semitism on my own side I have no power on the right I can call out Steve King but no one's gonna take away Steve King's committee appointments. Because of something Bhatia Unger Sargon said, you know, like I don't have any cachet with those people. I have cachet here, you know, so like I'm going to call it out on that side because it's disgusting and that's what we do. But I have no power to make change there. I have power here and I'm going to use it to fight all forms of bigotry, like the most important mandate, you know, to fight
1: for That's a really good point. I hadn't really thought about it in those terms before, about the kind of responsibility that you hold right. when you represent, you supposedly represent a side. Um, yeah, that's I. I really like the the way that you kind of clarified that because, of course, like we can all we can all like rail about what Trump did and said exactly. until we're blue in the face, but it it's it's more of a responsibility to talk about the people we admire potentially. And you
0: think that this is an intuition that belongs. To the in the left or that, that the left is at least very familiar with. I remember, um, as, it, it might come as a shock to our listeners, but I'm Israeli. Um, <laughs> but uh, I remember a lot of the arguments that we would have, it, it's a very familiar argument in Israel where you hear people on the right saying, what about Syria? What about Iran? What about uh, uh, Hamas in Gaza? They violate human rights left and right. Why are you so obsessed with the occupation? And then the sensible response on the left usually is, let them deal with their own crap, but that does not justify any human rights violation that happens on your watch. First of all, deal with what's happening in your house. Yeah, these are real human rights problems, but you're not fixing it, and you're not responsible for what Hamas does. You are responsible for what you do and what restrictions you put on Palestinians. It's it's such an obvious, familiar liberal argument. It's the Chomsky argument. Don't Take the high ground and point at all the despots around the world as long as your own country is committing human rights violations and is involved in imperialistic foreign policy. And suddenly, when you're flipping this argument internally and and re- asking the left to do some introspection about how it allows a whole underclass of society go underserved and ignored, then 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 you get this backlash and you 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 come against this glaring blind spot.
1: I mean, but I think what what's was interesting about what Bach was saying is not just that, what you're what you're saying, Adam, about the blind spot, but the, the the fact that she wields more power to affect change. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Right, right, yeah, no, right. It's
0: it's all part of that. So what changed? How did we get from what we took for granted in the past as a liberal intuition to where we are now?
2: Okay. Uh, it happened for a number of reasons. Let's take the New York Times. Um, okay, so first of all, there was a generational turnover in very fe- in a very small amount of time. So there was like a- about a hundred people took buyouts um, in two thousand eight, I believe it was. Okay, so you lost a hundred journalists, and then what they did was they brought in people who were not um, journalists, who were not uh, reporters and editors, but who were sort of ancillary figures, people to to do audio, people to do video, people to work on the product, people to work on the user experience. Now, all these people are in Slack channels with the journalists, and um, a lot of them, they made a concerted effort, which was good, to hire people of color. Um, about 40% of the new, um, uh, the new hires were people of color. But who does the New York Times hire, right? I mean, to be a journalist today, you know 100 years ago, 50 years ago, uh, journalism was a blue-collar job. It was a job that you did not need a high school diploma for, you did not need a college degree for, and only a third of journalists, you know, in 1931 had a college degree. Even before that, you had folks like Joseph Pulitzer and Benjamin Day, the guy who started the Penny Press. For them, it was very clear that journalism, the point of journalism was to be for the working class and by the working class. That, that was the point. It was a crusade on behalf of the poor and the working class. And they came up at a time when the press was very partisan. Partisan press is not a problem. The problem with our press today is not that it's partisan. It's that it's partisan on behalf of the elites, that it's partisan on behalf of the top 15 percent of the country. Right. The, the, the professional class. And, and it's so funny to me because you have just small digression. But, you know, you have like, you know, the conservative press and then you have the liberal press, you know, you have, you know, Nancy Pelosi and you have, Mitt Rom- uh, you have Mitch McConnell, right? And it looks like they're having this big fight, you know, trickle down economics, you know, versus welfare state, stronger welfare state. Neither of those are pro working class policies, right? It, it looks like a debate, but it's actually not because, you know, obviously like trickle down economics is not going to help the working class. But a welfare state is not about the working class either, right? It's about um, taking away the independence of the laboring class and creating people who live and exist at the beneficence of the government and the liberals who give them this beneficence, right? So you have these sort of tax, you know, you have these um, these tech moguls, right? And 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 they're happy to pay tons and tons. Tell me what tax bracket you want because they're gazillionaires. You'll never actually impact their wealth. They just want to keep being able to amass wealth, right? And just tell me what tax bracket I have to pay, right? And they'll create, like you said, a permanent underclass who lives, you know, who gets a universal basic income, right? But has no autonomy because they are living at the beneficence of this kind of elite, right? So what we have is a government and a press that is completely devoted to the top 15%. And what happens is every four years we decide which 7% of the top 15% gets to have their way. And and so I'm sorry, it was a huge digression. Uh, uh, should I get back to the
0: press? or uh, Let's uh, hold, hold it first for a second. Yeah. I'll digress on the digression. I, Vanessa and I had a discussion yesterday mm-hmm. about finances because part of my uh, working class inhibitions is that only now at, in my ripe age did I actually start investing. I, I, I used to, and well, to a large extent still am, guided by the working class idea that I need to keep my money where I can see it. Right, in
2: the mattress. In the mattress, yeah. exactly. Where it and, belongs.
0: And now <laughs> I went through the journey. I am a changed man because today i bought one stock like literally a single stock <laughs> that's awesome. so, yeah. and <laughs> vanessa and i were talking yesterday and she she was she was briefing me about how to uh, conduct my my business and
1: just like my limited knowledge of what is an ira <laughs> that that's ba- basically what i was the wisdom i was bestowing a roth ira versus an ira
0: and, and i remember thinking about that millennial cliche like it's it's a disgrace that they spent our time in high school teaching us history instead of finance. And I, I always resented that idea because, hey, A, why are you hating on history? And B, finance is black magic. <laughs> but obviously, it is a crucial piece of knowledge for people to have and it's crazy that so many of us grow up without having a shred of understanding. And it just occurred to me that the 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 GameStop story showed you how my, how destabilizing it really is when finance actually gets democratized and the great unwashed masses get to invest based on their whims. It would require probably the the entire financial system to recalibrate how it works when it's not just a fraction of the population that actively is involved in investment and yeah. I think it's probably something that, I mean, not in a sinister way, but that, that nobody's really motivated to change. It's just easier to keep things as they are with the majority of the public basically intellectually locked out from the stock market.
2: Okay, So that actually, I can get back now to the thing before I digressed. That's a really good segue, which is nobody's, you said nobody's motivated to see a change. And I think that that is a key to what's going on here in terms of the media and why the media has gotten so woke. Um, so I'll explain. So, so first of all, there was this generational to go back to the so in the New York Times and other places. This huge generational turnover, where a lot of people who were not actual journalists suddenly had a lot of power because they were part of the conversation. And a lot and 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 a lot of these people came from very elite institutions. Um, so fifty percent of New York Times staff journalists um went to an Ivy League university. Uh, right now, 92% of journalists have a college degree, as opposed to just um, 36% of Americans. 46% of Americans have never been, have have taken, you know, never taken a, a single, um, I'm sorry. 36% of Americans have never taken a single college course. Okay. Um, there's there's about 10% who have taken, who have some college, um, and then, you know, everybody else who doesn't. So, so um, you have this situation where the people tasked with telling the American story, not only are they overwhelmingly educated, higher educated than Americans, but they overwhelmingly live not just in pro-Clinton, you know, Democratic areas, but the most Democratic areas because the local industry has collapsed. Local journalism has collapsed because of the Internet. And so journalism is now much more digitized, digital, it's much more national, which means that it's much more coastal. So the journalists are more educated, live in much more expensive cities, make much more money and live completely sequestered from other Americans. They're much less likely to be religious um, and much, much more likely to be liberal. Now, it used to be that there was a countervailing force to the inherent overeducated liberalness of journalists which was either the corporations that they worked for, either they worked for a syndicated or a publication that belonged to, you know, a larger corporation. So their boss was the owner of a corporation, which meant that they were more conservative or their boss was a Republican, or they were working in a, you know, a one, one shop town. They were working in a town, a small town where there was only one or two newspapers, and when you have a monopoly like that you want everybody as your readers which means that you want an opinion page that is balanced or you know totally boring right you don't want to offend people you want both republicans and democrats to be able to read you right so the newspapers at that you know up until you know this current moment they tended to try to court everyone they tended to have the kind of news that a Republican or Democrat could read and not feel offended and feel like they got the story. Of course, all that changed because of the internet. So now we live in a situation where the news is incredibly nationalized, postal, um, it's, it's getting much younger um, because digital jobs don't pay very well and they tend to go to younger people. But those people, those younger people, you know, they're making 35000 dollars a year and living in New York City, right? That's not feasible unless you have a safety net. So it's increasingly rich, like it's really a rich man's job now. So it went over the course of a hundred years from being a a working class profession where, you know, right out of high school or not even finishing high school, you could get a job and you would make a little bit more than your neighbor, the cop, you know, to now it's this job of like total elites where you're now making a little bit less than, you know, your neighbor, the lawyer, let's say, right. And you're living in park slope, you know, and your, your kids are going to one of these, I don't know, fancy schools, whatever. So, you know, the, the whole, there's been a total population shift in who is a journalist and where the power lies. And because of something like Twitter, where, you know, you have people who can amass huge followings that can, they, they can now end up exerting power and influence against like, you know, the editors of the New York Times, and, and, and what we're seeing now is that the editors, you know, the, the sort of boomer generation, Gen X, they just don't have the cojones to stand up to being called racist by their uh, subordinates. Um, and and with the Times, you had um, one more factor. And and I think the reason to focus on the Times is because, um, is this interesting, by the way? I could stop at any moment. Um <laughs> Okay, so um, I'll just say one more thing, which is that the the Times plays an outsized role because, of course, with the crumbling of local journalism, um, you know, the the big you know legacy publications end up playing a much bigger role because they're sort of the last man standing. And what happened at the Times was they sort of realized that the um, the ads were not going to uh, online ads weren't going to bring in as much money as print ads, so they moved to a subscription model. So who are their subscribers? I mean, who's going to pay $120 a year for the New York Times? It's like people live on the Upper West Side. Okay. The New York Times, by the way, was always for the elites, right? It started at a time. So so Pulitzer, right, was, was doing this sort of revolution, trying to turn journalism into, into something for the working class. And on the other hand, you had Ox and the whole New York Times dynasty realizing they could do the opposite. That they could, if they could signal to advertisers that the working class was not buying the New York Times, they could charge more for ads because they could say, by the way, not one dollar you pay us for this ad will be wasted on a poor person seeing it, you know? Like only rich people will see it, right? Only someone who can buy a Cartier watch will be reading this anyway. So you won't be wasting your money on this $100,000 Cartier ad because no poor people will be seeing it, right? That was kind of the model they started. Back in, you know, 1896, stuck with it. And now that's sort of paying off. That's the model everybody's going for now. You know, everyone now wants that same elite bracket. And the New York Times took it one step further. They, um, they created this program called Project Feels, um, which uh, so about,
1: I think it was three
2: years ago, they started.
1: Feels, like all the fields Exactly. So they
2: started asking um, young, affluent um, millennials, I believe, mostly. To carefully selected to rate how articles made them feel after they read them. And they did this for about a year and then they created an AI program that could predict how articles would make readers feel. And they use that now to sell advertisers emotions. So they have 18 emotions that advertisers can pick. This sounds made up, okay? But it's like literally (laughs) on their website. They pick an emotion they want the reader to be feeling, and then they can then match them with the right article. And of course, the more the reader feels, the longer they stay on the page and the more likely they are to click on the ad. So this explains why Trump's name appears more or less every 250 words in the New York Times, because it was just a sure way to guarantee huge amounts of emotion. Right. Hmm. They literally. So it's basically the Facebook model. Right. Facebook is monetizing our emotions. So the New York Times doesn't need Facebook anymore because it has this sort of six million subscriber base. So they're selling those emotions. So I feel like all of these things together, all of these pieces of the puzzle together—the Twitter, the the desire that um, that reporters have to see their stories do well, right? To see their you know their stories shared by activists on Twitter, like you know, positively. The generational shift. All of this stuff meant that there was no longer a countervailing force to the journalist's own desire to see themselves as the heroes of some, you know, big Manichean drama between good and evil, because the money was now in journalists following their own natural inclinations to tell stories of good versus evil. And the last piece of the puzzle is, is, okay, so, you know, they could have done what Pulitzer did, right? We're living in a time of massive, disgusting inequality, right? This nation is unbearably economically unequal, it's disgusting. I mean, the amount of money the top 20% makes like compared to the bottom 80%. The top 20% owns half of like the income in this country. It's disgusting. I mean, it's unforgivable. Why is that happening? How is it happening? Why did the journalists not go down the economic route? Why did they choose a racial moral panic instead of saying, "Look, this is unjust. This is disgusting." You know, how is it fair that my cleaning lady makes a fraction of how much I make as journalists and she's working so much harder than me? Why? It's exactly why. Because exactly what you said, Adam, they don't want anything to change on the economic front because they're part of the elites. And I think that at some unconscious level, they understand that they understand that, you know. They want to be the heroes of a social justice story. They want to be Woodward and Bernstein. okay? but if they pick the real evil in this country, which is disgusting economic inequality, that's going to change their lives. And 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 why do that when there was an alternative right there? which is a moral panic about racial inequality that demanded that they change nothing about their lives because race is an immutable characteristic that you cannot do anything about. You cannot do anything about your white privilege except feel guilty, whereas your economic privilege, you could literally end it in, in, a, in a day. You know. But who wants to do that? Who, who really wants to give up on that? So that's sort of, in short, how I see the crisis that we're in and and why journalism has played a huge role in mainstreaming a moral panic around wokeness, cancel culture, open borders, anti-Zionism, all these things sort of fit together as a distraction from the real and disastrous inequality in this
1: nation.
0: Wow, there is a lot there. <laughs>
1: there's a lot, yeah. There's a lot. I'm sorry, but just no, no, no. That's great. We're gonna we're gonna hopefully spend the rest of the time like unpacking it all. But just to in in other words, I think you're saying that the 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 hyper focus on race relations is essentially a misdirection from the media in order to not grapple with economic. Inequality, yeah, and it's kind of exactly what it's coming exactly. Down
2: to. And I think everything that you guys mentioned, like that feeling of like the deep platforming, the, the 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 abdication of that raucous debate, you know, that used to be the point of journalism. Instead, now they're making it smaller and smaller. Like, what is the legitimate opinions? Like a power grab, essentially. I mean, some of it stems from just like the terror of being called a racist. It is horrible. It's horrible, and like I, I like to say, like. It's a tacit admission that they know you're not a racist because a real racist would not mind being called a racist. They do it to hurt you. So they know it will hurt you. They know that you're not. You know what I mean? And it's like at some point, we just have to to be able to say, like, that's not what that word means. You know, like, (laughs) that's not what
1: that word means. I mean, yeah, I wrote I wrote a whole article about this in in July about the 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 word racist and what it's come to mean and the expansiveness of its definition. Because I mean, so the the article article the the, the blog post that I wrote um, was kind of talking about how difficult it is when you're trying to do two things with the with the word racist, like at once you're attempting to take away. The pejorative sting of it and explain that, like, listen, the status quo is one that basically, um, dehumanizes black people the status quo is one that you know takes away their power and therefore that's the way that we're using the word racist and so you know we need to come to terms with this new definition of racism one that you shouldn't necessarily feel like bad about it it should just be a moment of reflection for us to talk about how everything we do in a racist society is racist right but at the in
0: a in a a society uh, structured on on some racist institutions. Yeah. This is the, the just to be clear. This is the Ibram Kendi formulation. Yeah. By his definition, a racist society isn't one where people are necessarily bigoted personally, but one which has historically benefited certain caste or class of people, and we are still reaping the benefits of that or suffering the the consequences of that. Yeah. That that is the, the 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 version of like trying to take out the sting that you're describing.
1: Yeah, and and to to the credit, because I was not somebody particularly versed in this in this world before you know maybe the summer when all of this started to pop up on my feed and into t- the credit it did work it worked actually like that new definition of racism did put like a bit of a light bulb in my head and it allowed me to kind of recognize a lot of the the ways in which our society has been and is I- I- racist in a way that i hadn't it just hadn't clicked before i knew it on some level but it kind of clicked on a more on a deeper level so to its credit it was successful in that what i write about in the in the piece is that on the other hand nobody's giving up the pejorative sting like everyone's using it more expansively but still wielding it as a weapon and so when you do that you get these like contradictory forces where you're tr- you're in, in theory trying to push uh, some sort of dialogue and and, and conversation around uh, how to how to move forward and pass these racist structures and at the same time you're 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 scaring the shit out of people and kind of preventing them from even engaging in that dialogue
0: by pejorative accusation. You mean like systemic as opposed to personal, right, right. The individual accusation of it.
1: Yeah, exactly. Right. So why Mm -hmm. is that Vanessa?
2: I, I love the way you put that. I totally agree. So you have to ask yourself why, why are they doing that? Well, who benefits from that? Who gains power from that? You know, like when Kendi says, when he writes in his book, you know, we're all racist. I too am racist, right? But then insists on using it as a cudgel against people who disagree with his policy proposals, right? It's such a genius power move, right? It's like, it's, the, it's, it's a genius power move. I, I don't think he's doing it on purpose, um, but we have, to, we have to reject that because you're, you're exactly right. It's a complete contradiction. You know, it can't both be that it is, you know, in the air that we breathe and that it is still an insult. And and I personally think it is incredibly important that it still be an insult because it is the worst thing you can be. And like it, it is an insult to the actual victims of genocide, you know, and the actual victims of apartheid and the actual victims of segregation and, and slavery and all of the things we did in this country that were terrible and continue to do in this country that are terrible. It's like really important that we be able to call Derek Chauvin a racist and that it still means something, you know, and that it not be that he is the same thing as other people. Like to me, that's, that's where the moral panic comes in, you know, moral panic's, they rely on two things. First thing they rely on is a consensus, right? Like if you don't have a consensus that witches are bad or that pedophiles are bad, you just have uh, a culture war, right? You don't get a moral panic until there's consensus in the society. And for the first time in American history there is huge consensus that racism is bad and evil, you know? And the second thing you need for a moral panic is it's they always, you know, it's always it's lurking You know, the big evil is lurking in the least expected places. You know, it's like the little old lady who's a kindergarten teacher is actually molesting your children, you know, like, oh, the the single woman at the edge of town who has no social power is actually a witch. You know what I mean? It's always like lurking in the... And that's, you know, I think Robin D'Angelo's new book is called like Nice White Racists or something like that, you know, like it's 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 exactly in the place you least expect to find it, you know, like, oh, maybe it's under this rock, maybe it's under this rock. It's like, no, we know exactly where it is, you know, it's like in mass incarceration, you know, like we know where it is. It's not like a mystery, you know, it's that whole thing to me, this moral panic. It's like, so I'm, I ask myself, who's gaining power and it is incredibly powerful. So 51% of African-Americans oppose affirmative action. They think it's insulting, okay, 51%. But if you go into liberal spaces and you say, I think you know affirmative action is insulting, you will get called a racist. It's like, I, I'm happy to be the kind of racist who 51% of black people are also like, I happen to support affirmative action, by the way. But I'm just saying as an example, like we've, what is, you know, the, the point of denuding that word of its power in some contexts, but keeping it in others, is so that people pushing specific policies can then tar the people who don't support their policies as racist. So, if you follow um, Jamal Bowman on Twitter, he is constantly calling things white supremacy. You know, the filibuster is white supremacy, standardized testing is white supremacy. Like, these things are not white supremacy. But so why does he call them that? It's like to give power. It gives him power to call people who oppose his policy, you know, the worst
1: thing you can be. But it's it's such a horrible thing to do. Like, you know, it's just so. Um, I just want to emphasize though, because I think, um, just for listeners who may not be as familiar with your writing, I do want to emphasize that when you write about this stuff, you make it incredibly clear that you're very glad that we're having this reckoning at the moment because you it is it we were past due for some con- for uh, acknowledgement of the inequities happening to black and brown people in this country. So I just want to make clear that as much as there is moral panic about it, it's not like you are are not acknowledging that it was very necessary.
2: Let me make that clear as well. Uh, There are lingering pockets of institutional racism in America, and there is no more urgent calling than to fix those. What's very exciting about this moment is that we have partners on the right who are anxious to be doing this as well. So it will probably surprise many of your listeners to know that the states that are at the forefront of criminal justice reform are red states. And they're doing it for a combination of fiscal and Christian reasons. Um, but they have, they, they have overseen more prisoner releases, as did President Trump, than uh, any on the left. Any, any
0: and by the way, this has been the case for almost a for decade, decade exactly. way before police shooting burst up into the to the lexicon of the New York Times as as a big story. Think tanks on the right have been obsessing about justice reform. It has some Christian underpinnings. It has some fiscal considerations, but it's also the libertarian streak that yeah. exists on the American right. Just parts of it that justly views over incarceration as the most abominable infringement of individual freedom.
2: Absolutely. Yeah. So I would say so in mass incarceration, I totally agree with you. For a decade, the right has been really at the forefront of this. Um, while while Chuck Schumer was blocking it in New York State, okay, right. Um, uh, on police brutality, I do think that this summer was incredibly important. I never thought I would live to hear Lindsey Graham and Mitch McConnell talk about America's original sin and talk about the need to you know really reevaluate policing. It was an incredible moment, and I. I, I, I so when I talk about more
0: and, and words from Lindsey Graham carry so much water. <laughs> um,
2: I, you know it, exactly, right? Uh, so what are people will say to me? Well, what are those words worth? I mean, they're they're the first step is 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 the words, right? Like you know, if that that's the first step, it's not worth nothing. You know, it, there is a difference between the Palestinian Authority and Hamas. You know, and it's that one of them is paying right, lip right. service to nonviolence, and the other is not, and that matters. Um, more than That's what
0: I always tell Vanessa, hypocrisy is valuable. At least there's some (laughs) ideal that you're holding yourself against and failing to live up to.
2: So I think to me, um, Vanessa, and I really appreciate you bringing that up, like there is a huge difference between the actual racism in America that we actually need to fix right now. And then the moral panic around, you know, diversity, equity, and inclusion. And I think, you know, the word equity is often the tell, you know, like, do you want equality or do you want equity? You know, to me, the word equity is about um, what Hannah Arendt called, you know, not, not, not the pursuit of equality, but a reversal of the personnel of, you know, oppressor and oppressed. We don't want the reversal of personnel. We want an equal society. Um, and, and I think that the majority of people of color want that too. according to into polling. And so to me, that's really um, another tell is like when you see um, liberal and lefty uh, writers calling people of color, often working class people of color who are not as extreme as them on race issues, you know, the handmaidens of white supremacy. No, it doesn't work that way, you know. And I think if you peel back the curtain, so much of this is about class. So much of it is about class. You know, and Adam, I'm really interested in what you think about this because I'm really interested in people who grew up in other societies. So I my father's British and but I spent many years in Israel as a teenager. And, you know, having experienced very different class societies coming back to America, like we have a very, very strict class um, delineation, but it's very unacknowledged. It's very taboo to talk about it. And you saw this, for example, with Trump, where people started saying, if you mentioned the economic anxiety of his supporters, that was a dog whistle. And I thought to myself, my God. How rich and economically secure do you have to be to call it racist for somebody to talk about their economic anxiety? Like, it's just so it was so perfect, you know, this just horrifying, but also like a perfect encapsulation of this.
0: It's part of the American myth that this is the classless society, right? This is the this is something that has been moving on the right. And, I, and I'm actually a little bit queasy about it see the, the 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 right is trying to 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 steal the base of class warfare now. Mm-hmm. there was a blog by uh, what's his name Scott Anderson. I think he was entreating the right to take over the class issue from the left and just today, as if answering the call, I saw a Ben Shapiro headline from a podcast episode or something that said the left is the new aristocracy and yeah sure there's something about that i'm just very uncomfortable with the right making this argument not because i'm dismissing the fact that there's uh the the american right had a much more complicated relationship with class than usually the left gives them credit it's just that i feel dishonest opportunism in the way that a lot of the, the the new class warriors of the right, people who would regularly go on Fox News under Obama to decry class warfare, and I'm sure would do the same as loudly during the Biden administration, uh, aren't the champions I would trust with combating the American aristocracy. It's like we keep saying, it's a, it's a game that that's being played between two extent aristocracies and each of them is trying to assert itself at the expense of the other without actually changing the rules of the game without anybody really wanting to countenance a real change to the status quo
2: so i i really appreciate what you just said as somebody who really only cares about you know improving a lot of the working class um i feel like By the way, the working class of all races, people often think the working class is white. It's not. It's incredibly diverse. Um, You know, (laughs) I feel like it's so great that the Republicans are giving the Democrats a run for their money. Good. Good. You know what? To go for it. You know, I thought, you know, Mitt Romney's, he had a great proposal for minimum wage. Josh Hawley had a right. great proposal for me. I love to see that. You know what I mean? Make them freaking fight for it because what happened actually was, you know, we say working class, it means two things. You know, there's an economic component and there's a cultural component, right? There's being economically working class, which means like, you know, you know, you, you're a wage laborer, right? You know, you make minimum wage, right? But then there's also sort of a more complex version of it, which is that, you know, you kind of are in opposition to the college educated elite. It's really the college is very much a dividing line, you know, and there's a culture associated with that, you know, for a long time in this country, you know, we look down on, you know, quote unquote, white trash, right? And then there came a moment like 20 years ago where, you know, they were like, you know, we're going to reclaim this, you know, and, 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 and you know, those people, some of them make good money, you know, some of them make better money than you know, journalists, right? You know, if you're a contractor, let's say, you know, if you have your, a small business that takes off, it's not all about money. And what you really see is like, you know, outlets like Fox News, for example, Rush Limbaugh, these, these outlets have really um, perfected bringing those two populations together the sort of wage laborer economic working class with the more cultural working class by never talking about economics by really focusing on the cultural war issues and focusing on this that, that allowed them to sort of you know cater to the more affluent set with sort of free market stuff but but That would never have worked. They would never have. And this is where Thomas Frank, you know, what's the matter with with Kansas really got it wrong. That would never have worked if the Democrats hadn't completely abandoned the working class economically. If there was anything for them to, to, to get to have a dignified, autonomous, independent life from the Democrats, they would never have abandoned them. What ended up happening was the Democrats gave them nothing economically and insulted their culture. And the Republicans, you know. They didn't give them anything economically, but at least they didn't insult them. You know, they didn't insult their religion. They didn't insult the the few things they could grasp onto that still gave them a sense of pride, despite the fact that they had lost every battle, cultural battle, economic battle in America. You know, so to me, like, how can you talk smack about Fox News when it's giving, you know, the, the, the people who are lowest on the totem pole a sense of pride and all we do is make them feel like garbage? You know, like it's it's just I, I, I you know, people the New York Times loves writing these articles, you know, Fox News ate my parents, Fox News turned my parents into zombies. It doesn't work that way. Fox News is not conservative. People are not working class. People are not conservative because they watch Fox News. Fox News is conservative because it's catering to the working class and the working class tends to be conservative because they cannot afford ridiculous ideas <laughs> that like people who are well educated and have a lot of money can can afford. You know, when a person who's working class has a child out of wedlock. Right. Just something that like, you know, people do all the time are you know, first of all, in Scandinavia, upper class, people do this all the time. But also like, you know, the sexual revolution, let's say, you know, when working class people have a child out of wedlock, that child on a downward mobility trajectory like just in terms of data like their 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 ability to rise socially is halved okay you know when a poor person gets caught with drugs right they're going away for a much longer time than somebody you know smoking weed in their like park soap park soap apartment which is you know has been legalized you know de facto basically forever right So you have these like, you know, liberal ideas that get associated with the left and the working class always ends up paying the price for them. Open borders, you know, this idea that like flatters the vanity, you know, of affluent liberals. Like, let's take care of the poor of every other nation. You know, who's paying the cost for your vanity? You know, it's the working class. You cannot have a wage floor. when You have an unlimited supply. Of undocumented labor, it's impossible, right? And that used to be a lefty idea. You know, as recently as 2015, Bernie Sanders was out there being like, right. "Open borders." That's a Koch brothers proposal. You know what I mean? And it's like by 2020, he was up there saying, "No, we have to decriminalize illegal border crossing." I forget what I why what question I was. Like. I'm so sorry. Like <laughs> every time I stop talking, I'm like, "All right, a shut up. You're done. Just now, just let them talk. <laughs> You're not saying anything else." <laughs>
0: I, I and I, I apologize. I apologize that I was um, when you mentioned uh, Rush Limbaugh before, and I was um, um, giggling like a, like an idiot, nine year old. I really worked hard, and I, I should get credit for it to suppress immediately saying "rest in power." But uh, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> I had to put it into the record, but uh, but I was like, I did not cut your flow, and I'm very proud of myself. The the, the <laughs> question that, that comes to me that, well, there are 17 different ones. You, you you keep saying that the the left abandoned the the working class, and I think that's... A point that might not be obvious to to some listeners, to what extent that, that is true, because people will say, sure, even if we agree that the left has its vanity projects and, you know, things like Robin DiAngelo that are very clearly uh, an Opus Dei type self-flagellation for, for white guilt repentance and nothing more and without any real social agenda to it. But you could still say that the the welfare state, while not necessarily as, as competent as we'd like, is still better than the corporate welfare that the Mitch McConnells of the world promulgate. But in the spirit of self-indulgence and contrarianism, I will admit that there is a big case that the right can make that they are the class warriors now. And I expect, Batya that you're going to make the case from economics. I want to make one point about policing first. You remember the Lee Fang story?
2: Oh, yeah, he's great. Totally.
0: So he's an Asian-American reporter for The Intercept. And during the height of the George Floyd protests, He was traveling across the country doing his reporting and in one of the demonstrations he offered attendees to come up and, and, you know, just share a statement or whatever their thoughts are. And he would just publish them verbatim to Twitter. And then one of the protesters who approached him, a black man, said, yeah, I have something to say. And he said, yes, this protest is wonderful and I'm so glad that we're finally having these conversations but I also have a problem that black lives only matter when it serves some media narrative, or specifically, in this case, when white police take them. And his point was that he had a brother and other family members and friends who were murdered during the crime surge due to lack of policing. And he said, why doesn't the media ever talk about this? And it was really heartfelt and and, and expressed this terrible, tragic story with so much nuance. And Li Feng just posted it straight up to Twitter as a video. And he got lambasted for it by his fellow reporters on The Intercept. And he was condemned as racist because he allowed a black person to proclaim a view that was in contradiction with the prevalent opinion of abolish the police. And, you know, when you go back to the History of the late 20th century in the US, systemic racism took the form of under policing. People were complaining about all, all the good policing resources going to white neighborhoods because black lives weren't valued as much. And so it's not like law and order is an inherently Fox Newsy idea, but once it got tainted as such by the academies of the New York Times and the liberal elite, then if you even suggest that crime hurts minority neighborhoods and that we need better policing, not an abolished police, then you get flagged as racist. And so to me, this is an example of class warfare. This is an intellectualizing elite that completely ignores the actual needs of, of working class families in the neighborhoods that are most immediately impacted by policing, good or bad. And attempts by people like Li Fang to even give voice to those people living in those neighborhoods gets flagged as racist because it doesn't fit the aristocratic narrative.
2: I I could not agree with you more. If you look at the data, 81% of Black Americans said they want the police to spend the same amount of time in their neighborhoods or more. And so what did the Democrats run on? Defund the police. <laughs> uh, it's, it's, a, it's a perfect example of, um, you know, Democrats increasingly being aligned with, you know, the college educated and the Republicans being able to sweep up uh, working class people of all races. Now, I, I really appreciate your question. Like, Obviously, very few Republicans care about the working class. Right. Not one of them voted for the uh, child tax credit um, or for the covid bill, basically, that had, you know, this. Supposedly conservative, you know, pro-child uh, provision in it. Um, uh, I, I want to make two points. The first is that you know, a strong welfare state, which you're right, um, right now, the Democrats represent much more than the Republicans, is not a pro-working class platform. Right, the the working class very much often sees itself as in tension with welfare recipients because they end up paying the taxes and they often see themselves as paying taxes to people who are not working. Now, of course, they may be right or wrong about that. In many cases, they're wrong, right? We have this corporate tax, corporate welfare situation where people can work very long hours and still have no benefits and rely on the welfare state. But that's obviously terrible. And I've spoken to a lot of working class people, Republicans of all races who are wrong about that. You know, they see welfare recipients as, you know, um, people who are unfairly benefiting from their labor. At the same time, kind of like what what we started with, um, there is a way in which a lot of the Democrats' policies do seem writ large to be about creating a permanent underclass. Um, You know, universal basic income is a really good example. You know, Um, that's not a pro-working class uh, position because the working class wants the dignity of labor, right? So what you have is people in Silicon Valley who are trying to make labor obsolete through this new f- version of automation, right? And they're saying, well, it's okay. We'll just pay everybody $20,000 a year to not work. That's not a pro working class platform, right? Can I,
1: can I push on that a yeah, little bit? Yeah, sure. Yeah, because I mean, from, from, from what I've read about UBI, and you're absolutely right that it derives from like a Silicon Valley intellectual or at least it's getting pushed and funded by Silicon Valley elites, like totally totally right, but from what I've seen of, um, for example, the the trial that was in Stockton, California from with um, the Mayor Tubbs who, who kind of implemented it there none of the people who received the UBI, and, and to be fair this is not actually UBI because it wasn't universal because it was for a segment of the population that earned under the median income for their zip code, But that aside, every single person who received this uh, stipend, monthly stipend, I'm I'm like any if they were working, they were able to. They, if they were working, they were able to maintain their employment. And if they were unemployed, a lot of them were actually able to gain employment. Um, and so the, the, the supplemental income was just enough to allow them to pay off things like you know groceries or hospital bills so that they could end and then have the time or, or maybe even stop a part time job so that they could start looking for a full time job. So it didn't seem antithetical at all to having a job. It seemed actually a, like a potentially like a job spur having that monthly income.
0: and and add to that the problem of indignity that ubi solves for because in a normal safety net you need to stand in line for unemployment and you need to go through a humiliating bureaucratic process here you don't so you're spared the the cognitive tax of indignity
2: so you're saying using it as unemployment
0: an unemployment benefit that is destigmatized from what it means to be unemployed
2: so it As as you guys have just demonstrated, this idea very much appeals to people in our socioeconomic situation, right? Like we can, but it does. When you talk to working class people, Mm. it is insulting. And and to me, the question I would pose to you, Vanessa, is why are why are there jobs in America that are full time jobs or even part time jobs that a person cannot live on?
1: Yeah. No, I absolutely agree with that. I know sure. you
2: totally agree with that. Yeah.
1: Yeah.
2: Why are we creating band-aids on a bullet wound, you know? And you know who used to know this? Elizabeth Warren, she wrote this amazing book, The Two Income Trap, you know, which was an anti-feminist book. I'm sorry, but it was it, in a glorious way. It was like, what she was saying was, we are, we've created a society where everyone have both parents have to work, you know, instead of being a society where someone is home with the children, like, what, how did we allow that to happen? We allowed it to happen because, and I totally believe this, the media abandoned the working class. And when it did that, you know, everyone realized there's this concept in the in the Talmud, Hefker. It's, uh, I don't know if you, if it's in Hebrew, actually, modern Hebrew yep, probably yep. doesn't have it. Hefker. It means like abandoned. It means something that basically comes up in law. So let's say you find a wallet in the street, you know, do you have to return it or can you keep it? There are actually hundreds of pages devoted to this very difficult and important question in the Talmud. And one of the ways of determining it is, is it Hefker? Does it look abandoned? Is it clear that no one is looking for this anymore? You know, it's in such a bad state. It's nobody's responsibility anymore. Then you can can claim.
0: It's a broken window.
2: Exactly. Exactly. And I think that the media conveyed that the working class was Hefker. That you could destroy their jobs, destroy their incomes, get rid of their jobs, have their, the money, have no wage growth, and no—we will not speak out about it. You can get away with that, and and.
0: But, but 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 isn't automation real to the extent that it has a deleterious effect? It's
2: a choice, Adam. It's a choice. It's always a choice to to pursue that a globalization, outsourcing of manufacturing, pursuing trade deals right. with China. Like, who thought that was a good idea? Democrats thought that was a good idea. I, I do want to make one more point to your really good but bo- bo- both of you. Oh, no. Kitten on the road cat. <laughs> <laughs> Getting me having both a cat and a roadcaster. Um, <laughs> um, um, uh, 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 I did want to make one more point. So, yeah. Yes. The Democrats right now are moving in a more populist. Di- I wouldn't even want to call it populist, but a more pro working class, lower class direction after Trump. And this is very hard to admit. Before Trump, Clinton, Obama, these guys were like at the forefront of trade deals that were disastrous for the working class. Trump was a populist. He didn't deliver on a lot of his promises. You know, he was, he was really full of, full of it, you know, like, but he did, he, he conveyed to the working class that he was on their side, which is not worth nothing. That is worth something. And, he, and his economy was working for the bottom, the bottom court of 25%. Uh, they saw a 4.5% wage increase. The top 25% only saw a 2.5% wage increase under Trump on, in 2019. Um, he renegotiated NAFTA. It's now the most pro-labor trade deal the United States has ever signed. You know, he, he made a lot of promises he didn't keep. He was full of it he did have his eye on that. I mean, it was, it came from Steve Bannon who was, you know, kicked out and overruled by, you know, the tax cuts and Mitch McConnell and whatever. Um, And, and what does Trump actually, who does he even care about? Nobody except himself, but he managed to do something, which was um, he platformed these people and their needs and their wishes to be, their need to be seen. And there, he made their problems significant and real again. And, uh, uh, the, I don't know that the Democrats would be here if not for Trump. I know that you know the squad wouldn't exist if not for Trump, right? And to the extent to I don't actually don't think the squad are pro working class at all, but to the extent to which the Progressive wing is influencing these policies, that is very much I think, because of Trump. And it is really interesting when you look at like, you know for example, um, free college, right? Just one more example that you know, is always being, you know, uh, pushed as this kind of like socialist agenda.
0: Oh, oh, don't get me started on that.
2: It's like, you're not trying to make a strong working class when you tell everyone to go to college. You're trying to make no working class, right? Like, it's an attempt to actually... And why do they want there to be no working class? Because the working class is increasingly voting for Republicans, right? And and this has been
0: a facet of I mean that that I'll push back on that because I do think that's a little bit of a strawman of the liberal position much as I take pleasure in throwing punches at the left. I do think that there is a, a naive but tr- honest belief on the left that that the ideal society that we're trying to engineer is is this aristotelian utopia where everybody can fulfill their otium everyone wears a toga and can be whatever they want to be a poem a flute player a
2: podcaster
0: and a podcaster (laughs) like nobody wants to be working um 10 hours a day in a factory if they can no, I, I know, yeah. no, I, I but I think that that's an honest belief. My point is not that 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 I agree with it. I just say that I, I really think that I don't think that they're trying to eliminate that that culture because it's Republican. I think they're trying to eliminate it because they think that this is having a working class is in itself the, oppressive product of late stage capitalism and eliminating it is is our path forward to a more enlightened society
2: i would agree with you before trump before they voted for trump before they had the audacity to spit in the faces of their betters and impose their wish on us now i think it really is about fuck them it's about yeah you
1: said it it, it's kind of getting back to this like false consciousness thing that you bring up in your in your piece today about the kind of condescension of of so seemingly knowing what they want and if they don't want it, then it's because they don't know better like that.
0: Today being March 10th, by the way, because this oh, yes. will definitely not be airing today.
1: <laughs> yes, it's a great piece. You should go go check it out. But it does bring actually bringing up this piece, and I know we have not that much time left, so I do want to bring up this this idea of this misdirection towards race and away from economics for me it just feels like a little bit of a of a leap even if the media isn't talking about class as much as it should it doesn't mean that you know we and the media shouldn't shouldn't be talking about race right now right
2: well i i'm not sure we need to be talking about race in the way that we are uh i find it very dehumanizing all of my black friends do and um certainly you know a lot of people of color
0: well invoking your black friends no. is white supremacy so
2: <laughs> i know i shouldn't have said that i'm not supposed to think <laughs> that i have them because it's so you know like <laughs> it's like a dog whistle right um i i know I, I think that people are you know find it extremely dehumanizing like we've, we've reached a stage where we are now looking past people's humanity to their race and the thing that the, the moral panic around race does is is like <laughs> you know at some point let me put it this way, because I want to be precise about this. Who is this benefiting? You know, Like, who is defund the police benefiting when 81% of African-Americans oppose that view? Like, how did that become the position of the left? Like, how did a view that is so wrong for, you know, the communities who most need our attention, you know, <laughs> How did that become the lingua franca? You know, it's that's the question I'm trying to answer. How did this academic fringe view, this woke view that doesn't say we have certain areas in our country that we need to fix, but says rather everything is about race, you know, like that is the first thing you reach for in every conversation. How did that happen? How did there become a market among you know, the people who read the New York Times, right? So among liberal white elites, right, affluent liberal whites, how did they want to become the consumers of a moral panic? And it, it's about them, right? So, so to, back to Adam's point, so the New York Times in 2020 ran over 700 articles about white supremacy. They ran one article about the historic rising crime in inner cities, Okay. Like this stuff is not for the victims of those crimes, hundreds of children who have been murdered who no one cares about. No one will say their names, you know? It's it's for the it's for the Cartier watch ad consumer, right? So why do they want to be told that they are, you know, hopelessly racist, hopelessly benefiting from and enabling a white supremacy? That was the question I was trying to answer. Is How did it become a market for such an extreme view that 10 years ago would would have been seen for the fringe academic malarkey that it is? That's what I was trying to answer. And so I, you know, because I I guess I am a bit of a, at the end of the day, a vulgar Marxist, you know, I I was asking, okay, who's benefiting from this? How are they benefiting from it? And, And to me, it seems clear that it's just the perfect distraction. Because on the one hand, liberals have become, you know, the Democrats have become increasingly identified with the college educated, with the elites who are benefiting from the current economic system, right? On the other hand, they're still liberals. They still think they are the compassionate people. They are the ones who are, you know, who care about the disenfranchised and the poor. And so they, you know, this kind of woke overcorrection on race is what it is. We still have areas we need to correct, but we have jumped right over all those areas we need to correct where we have partners on the right, jumped right over them to DEI committees and telling children that they are little white supremacists when they're three years old, right? So so that was the perfect, it, it was the perfect defense of the status quo is what I'm trying to say, because they, the real inequality is not economic according to you know, this view. It's racial. And if it's racial, you can't fix it. Right? Because race is immutable. That's kind of how I, I, I came to see it.
0: And, and never underestimate the cheap intellectual narcissism of it. And the, oh, um, yeah. the cheap, also the, the very low cost attempts at repentance. Which goes back, Vanessa and I had a conversation with our journalist friend, Yashika Kadat, who wrote a great book about uh, the, ca- the Indian caste system and h- how it interplays with the West. And one of the most fascinating things for me is just how self-centered the Western elites are, e- even in their self-criticism. Because the only way in which... And American Academy and the American literati can talk about the Orient or India or the rest of the world is through the prism of the white oppressor. They completely ignore. They're incapable of seeing the difference in history and culture and the unique form of class, racial and ethnic inequality in those places because... There can only be one prime mover, and that is white supremacy or European colonialism. It's this totally self-obsessed theology.
2: Well, I I push back on theology as a religious person. (laughs) I I don't like when people call wokeness religion because religion is all about forgiveness and grace and recognition. Some
0: religions are. Some religions are. Well,
2: well our religion is and christianity i don't know as well as ours but i know that grace is really important and
0: no i mean i mean um, those are two
2: yeah well <laughs> okay fair enough uh my muslim friends tell me that islam also has a big component of forgiveness i'll give you three (laughs) um you know but those are the american religions right like uh,
0: is your is your marxist religion in in favor of uh (laughs) forgiveness
2: uh no but i mean it is very popular to call wokeness a religion and i just feel like it's it's really it's the opposite of religion because like the whole point of religion is to Hold yourself up to an ideal and find yourself wanting and to always hold yourself to a higher standard than you hold others and always seek to forgive others and give the benefit of the doubt and know that we are all created in God's image and all, you know, equally, you know, uh, um, you know, I don't want to say sinners because it's not really a Jewish concept, but like, you know, equally flawed and, and always trying to do better. So to me, it's, it doesn't, like, when I see people saying, oh, wokeness is religion, I'm like, you're not religious and you don't know any religious people and you've never spent any time in, like, church or synagogue because that's not how religions work at all.
0: Thank you for opening this door. <laughs> spent many a day in synagogues in one of the most, um, I'd say, theocratic cities in, in, in the Western world, if you consider Israel part of the West, or a, a very theocratic city. And I have a slightly different view of religion than you. Uh-huh. <laughs> but let me just say that the, I think the comparison to wokeness is, and, and generally to, to forms of ideology, can be very compelling when you take into account that yeah, sure. Religion has that component of redemption, atonement and absolution of self. But then you have the more like radical fundamentalist version which let's not talk about what 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 we can see now in, you know, in Mesherim in Jerusalem or in Wahhabi <laughs> Islamism. Let's just think about uh let's let's go historical. Let's talk about the Tzdukim and Pushim in in old Judea or let's talk about all the Puritan sects of 16th, 17th century Britain. Those are feverish, enthusiastic fanatics who have developed their own self-referential Gnostic code, which sees everyone is overflowing with sin. The world is corrupt, humanity is fallen, and the only way to overcome it is committing to either a monastic lifestyle or adopting a regula of weird, esoteric, behaviors and practices that communicate your, your loyalty to some cosmic order and your enunciation of this fetid world in the name of a higher, godlier justice. And it's through these eccentric customs and acts that you mark yourself as one of the righteous few. And it happened often throughout history that the the moneyed elites, whether they were n- landed nobility or whatever, wanted to associate themselves with those fanatics because they felt, gosh, those weirdos are really going all out. I guess they must be on to something. Otherwise, why else would they be so crazy? Maybe we should just give them all our money and throw our lots with them so that, that we increase our chances to cross the pearly gates. So corporations doing virtue signaling and siding with the uh, woke is nothing new.
2: I'm feeling the uncomfortable feeling of suspecting perhaps I have been wrong all this time about something because that is a very compelling challenge. And my response that I want to make, I think is weak, but I'm going to make it anyway. And I'm going to go back to the drawing board on this question. My response is that the examples you brought up are actually examples of politics, not of religion. Mm. And that the fighting between those sects was political fighting over um, institutional power rather than over a spiritual practice, which definitely Stukim and Prushim, there was no concept of the inner self at that point yet um, in Judaism. And so um, it wouldn't have had a spiritual component in the way that we would recognize for a religion today. But I hear myself saying that and I, I feel that what you said was stronger and that this is sort of just the last gasp of me not wanting to let go of something that I've long believed. Well, probably so, yeah.
1: because you, you respect... Religion and you see the, the the goodness that it has brought you in your life, and because you are highly critical of wokeness, it's probably there's probably like a dissonance there. Like, no, those things aren't similar at
2: all. This is actually a La- um, Christopher Lash's point that um, about religion, but I I I I, th- I think that you've brought you're right that at least by the Middle Ages, people were using mystical spiritual language to talk about political fights and so the distinction i'm trying to draw to save my losing side and my 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 investment in this argument is not really valid like it seems like almost a distinction without a meaning so i'm gonna think about what you said
0: and i think i i I suspect um, and and maybe i'm projecting here but some of the view of religion that you have is i guess what but like we mentioned our interview with Tomer persico and and tom holland and what some of the this their type of scholarship asserts is that this is a a much later um, christianized essentially protestant version of the self as being the center of the religious experience the internal dialogue of the individual with the infinite on one hand and the corporeal on the other as being the central drama of religion. Whereas for the majority of history, religion really was, if you can even call it religion, is just a natural connection to your tribe, to your politics, to your state. It was just another feature, another layer of, of your social existence.
2: It's interesting you say that because I, was, I grew up extremely religious. I was then secular for many, many years and then came back to it um, after I read uh, Robert Putnam's book, Bowling Alone. Right. It's just kind of funny. I know. I read that book and I as a patriot, I felt like, no, I have to reinvest in the social fabric and then that brought on a spiritual reawakening and I sort of returned to the religion of my youth that I had like long abandoned on feminist grounds and whatever. Hmm. <laughs> um so I did come back to it from a point of view like from a communal point of view, from the idea that like a healthy society needs this and if it, I look at what liberal America looks like, it feels godless in a way that bothers me like that the sanctity of human life is absent but i I think you're right it's absent on the right as well where you have more like does jerry fall have like a deep sense of of the sanctity of of human life no but when i go into you know when i go to the south and i go to church like it is extremely powerful and um in america at least where we are so committed to our freedoms uh, it does seem like without religion, we're going down a dark path of sort of abandoning each other in the social fabric. And so that's sort of what drew me back. But um, I, I have to think a lot about what you said, Adam. It's a really good point.
0: Um certainly big on communitarianism for what it's worth.
2: Yeah. But does it work without God? I mean, that's the thing is you sort of...
0: <sighs> that's a question that keeps coming back. Does it work without God? I think it should. I think it I could make it better.
2: You think that because you're Israeli, because Israel is a very communitarian society. And the reason it is so communitarian is because the enemy is so obvious. Oh, yeah. Like, And I think that that really, you know, my partner, he spent many, uh, many years, spent three years as a child on a Moshav, like, um, which is a little village uh, 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 in Gaza, basically, on before Israel uh, uh, withdrew from Gaza. They had like little um, farm villages there, basically, of settlers. And he said he's never in his entire life ever met people that nice. And they were so nice to each other and so nice to this Russian kid who like barely spoke Hebrew. They like treated him like a king, you know, everywhere else in Israel, they hate Russians. They're so mean to them. They treated him so well and they were so racist, like to the Arabs. And it was just that went together. Like when you have such a clear enemy, you become really tightly knit and the whole of it i don't think the whole of israel is racist against arabs but the society itself i think because it has such a clear sense of who the th- where the threat is coming from is very very tightly tightly knit and a really in a- if you could get that without the racism, it would be like so great.
0: <laughs> and I, I actually, I think it's a it's a great observation. And I think you even see that right now, if you're um, looking discerningly enough in what's happening in Israeli society in the past 10 years, where security issues have, have been, at least seemingly, creating the impression that they're resolved, Absolutely. providing the Israeli side, obviously not the Palestinians, with years of quiet and illusory serenity. And what happened... During this piece, Israel becomes radically more neoliberal.
2: Totally. So true.
0: (laughs) It's more lonely. Do you have time for one more question? Of course. Great, because you took us down the perfect segue for (laughs) the Jewish question. Uh So what's your final solution? Sorry. (laughs) Sorry. what have
2: the- to talk about that?
0: <laughs> <laughs> okay, but oh, w-
2: did you mean that seriously like for Israel? Like No, how no, no, I- no, 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 no. Okay, you were joking. No, no, right. for the
0: Jewish problem. <laughs> <laughs> what's the I mean, what's the thing with Jews and social justice? With Jews?
2: What's what's up with you guys? <laughs> okay, it's
0: it's it's a really it's something that's fascinated me yeah. in in my own my own kind of identitarian narcissism. The 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 difference between the the uh, way that Israeli Jews understand what it means to be part of the community, part of the group, part of uh, oh my God. Jewiness. Can I just
2: say, Israelis are the worst. Like they make it so much harder. They'll say things that are so anti-Semitic. They'll be like, "Oh yeah, APAC, APAC, our <laughs> friends, APAC." You know, I'm winking, and it's like, it "Don't talk that way, like that." But they don't get it. Like they don't get it because like they are the. Majority. I
0: mean, but come on, APAC, come on, <laughs> fucking Benjamins, come on. <laughs> it's really problematic. Sorry, go on. <laughs> no, no, but this is, this is exactly it. The, let's stay on it. Because I find this, this divide, the diaspora Jews versus the community in Israel, fascinating. And I think there is a huge and widening gulf between how those two communities understand themselves. What being Jewish, what belonging to the community means for each of them is becoming less and less compatible with time. Like you have the internationalist, kunalam American Jews, and then you have the nationalistic Israeli community, and between them there's this schism. And then you have the question of anti-Zionism and whether that's anti-Semitism, which also plays on the relationship between those two communities. So basically, it's a bucket of a million questions, and because I promised this is going to be the last one, pick your favorite version of the question and run with it.
2: Okay. Uh, Israeli Jews are a majority with a minority living amongst them. And then, of course, an occupation. So, you know, Um, uh, American Jews are a minority living in a majority country. So we're going to have fundamentally different views of the point of a liberal democracy, right? Like, is the point of a liberal democracy to, you know, define a majority culture and, you know, give it a home and do its best to protect its minorities? Or is the point of... A liberal democracy, the celebration of difference, right? It's just two different ways of relating to, again, it's like your narcissism, but it's also just your status. And I think, especially, it's especially fraught in Israel because of the Holocaust. Like, it was just imagine having that whole conversation, then having the Holocaust, like animating all the, you know what I mean? Every conversation behind it. So, from that point of view, we just have very, I think that the role that diaspora Jews can play for israel
0: so you're saying the holocaust was a negative unbalance
2: <laughs> i mean i i think this is fair to fair to, to call it that <laughs> um so i i think for me the role that diaspora jews play not just to israeli jews but to the world is um we remind you that liberal democracy can work but we are the promise of a liberal democracy fulfilled we are a minority that lives not just Tolerated, but celebrated, protected. You know, I always think of that moment with the um, Pittsburgh shooting when, oh God, I always get emotional. (laughs) I'm sorry. The cops ran in and threw themselves like, you know, in the line of fire, you know, like for a Jew, like with our history to see that, you know, like it used to be the cops were perpetrating the pogroms in the old country, you know, and here they literally died, like saving us, protecting us, you know, and, and we're unique, like black people don't get that, you know, it's that's just we know that that's. Um, and, and but but we say to the world, look, it's possible like not to hate your minorities, it's possible to truly love them and celebrate them. It's possible to have them so integrated into the fabric of your society that, you know, you cannot imagine your your, your world without them, you know, um, and, and we have a responsibility to uh, ensure that that happens for all minorities in America, from Muslims and African-Americans and Latinos and everybody, Asian-Americans right now who are under threat, who are not being insured, uh, you know, protected in that same way. And and that's the reminder we serve to Israelis as well, you know. Like you should treat your minorities a little bit better. Like uh, you know, like, look, this is this is where you
0: like dial down the apartheid, guys.
2: <laughs> um, at the same time, I think it must be infuriating for Israelis to have to endure, you know. American Jews who are not stakeholders, who can't vote in Israel, who are sitting here, you know, from the safety of our Brooklyn apartments and like lecturing you about. And I think the thing that that drives me nuts personally is when they talk about the, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict um, in racial terms, it's not a racial conflict. It's a national conflict. And, and, and the Palestinians are, you know, yes, there is an occupation, but they are also agents. They have a lot of agency and they have over the years had a lot of agency that they have misused. So you know that we we use our paradigm and misapply it to Israel. Israelis use their paradigm. You know, wink, wink, nudge, nudge about apac misapply it to us. You know, <laughs> um it's it's a problem. Like, but but you know, it's not a big problem. Like like you said, that stukim and the Prussian, they literally killed each other 250 years ago. Jews were giving each other up to like you know the czar. And right now, between Israel, you know, American Jews and, and Israeli Jews in the diaspora, it seems to me very very minor and mild. And a lot of it was caused by Trump so close with Bibi netanyahu he made him and american jews hated trump so much that suddenly now that he's gone it's like bye i'll go back to being like israel's total cheerleaders go do 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 occupation we don't care we you know so i think it's gonna it's totally gonna die down about anti-semitism and anti-zionism um you know it's a really important question uh two jews three opinions jews do not agree on this topic i respect a lot of people who think that anti-zionism is anti-semitic i think i respect a lot of people who think it's not i personally don't think it's inherently anti-semitic i i respect certainly any palestinian who says i don't i wish there was no jewish state i you know i understand why like you have paid the price for this state to right. call that bigotry is ridiculous like that's just unfair in a way to criminalize their speech i think it's ridiculous when some random British guy, like, this is the issue he cares about, some white dude living in, like, you know, Liverpool, why is this your issue? It's not anti-Semitic that it's his issue, but I might suspect, I might be like, maybe he doesn't like Jews. Like, there's a lot of other issues. There's a lot of other injustices he could have picked, and he picked this one. Like, I, I, you know, hmm, interesting, you know, like, that does not make opposition to a political entity the same as bigotry. So I, to me, they're different. I think anti-Zionism is, is wokeness, Middle East edition. So it's essentially the inability to distinguish between, you know, a a state that has made mistakes and is making mistakes and, you know, that state having a right to exist. So I think it's stupid. Like, I think it's not for Palestinians. Again, I just want to reiterate that, like I respect every Palestinian's right to be anti-Zionism, anti-Zionist, but if, if you're just sitting there looking, you know, thinking, you know, you know, is Zionism racism, for example, does the Jewish state have a right to exist? Like the pathway that leads to no, I think is very silly and not really defensible. Um, and, and is the same one that leads down, you know, to the 1619 project where we have to define something as its worst moments, as its worst mistakes. It's, it's the Deridian move. It's the kind of, It's actually a logical fallacy, you know, it's the um, grain of salt fallacy, right? So, you know, how do I know, or, you know, or the the candle fallacy, it's sometimes called, right? You have a candle in a dark room, right? So there's like a little bit of light around it. You can't tell where the, where exactly does the dark start and the light end? It's hard to say, right? There's like a range. But what the postmodernist, what Derrida would say is, you know, because we can't tell exactly where light ends and darkness begins therefore there's no difference between light and dark that's what different was basically about it was saying like you know that if you can't tell exactly where something is you know then there's no difference between right and wrong and i think that's silly and it's a logical fallacy you know we can tell the difference between right and wrong you know so people say this all the time to me on twitter like oh would you platform hitler you know would you platform david duke it's like No, but if you can't tell the difference between a working class person, you know, who voted for Trump because actually he made his life better and David Duke, you're not a morally serious person. Like this idea that we don't know the difference between, you know, a state that is perpetuating an unfortunate, unjust, terrible, needs to end occupation and a state that has no right to exist. Like that's not morally serious to me. Like There is an obvious difference between those two things. And I think most of us know that. And I think a lot of people who are less educated, that's very clear to them. What happens when you go to universities now is you learn a bunch of crap, which I know because I have a PhD in crap, you know, (laughs) like literally I have a PhD in nonsense. I mean, like (laughs) like, you just learn to think your way out of, you can't really get a PhD in the humanities without studying all of this theory, which is why I know it. And it's like, then you have to unlearn it. Like, how do you unlearn something that's been like it's like mother's milk? Like, there's no way to encounter Shakespeare anymore without this stuff. It's like, not that Shakespeare's that great. What am I talking about? Somebody stop me.
0: <laughs> so why isn't Shakespeare? No, 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 big?
1: no. <laughs> 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 no, we should the next time we talk. When your um, when your book comes out, we'll hopefully have you back. And then we can amazing. get into Thank we you can drag so much. Shakespeare. Slash oh defend God. him.
0: Is it ready? Is it ready to publish?
1: Um, it is with the copy editor.
2: Woo, congrats. With the copy
0: editor. What a what a pleasant moment. Like no more weight on your shoulder. Yeah, know.
2: you know, it's like there was just nothing else to do. Like this pandemic, <laughs> there was right. nothing else to do. It was like at some point, like there's just you can't watch any more TV. You know what I mean? <laughs> and I was like, yes, I'll have to do something, you know.
1: <laughs> well, you can train your cat. you said you have a new one it sounds like (laughs) and then hopefully we'll all be vaccinated and then you can go outside
0: it's been such a pleasure talking to you you. and I, i really hope you can join us again thank
2: you so much you guys this was such a pleasure you are both so interesting and so wonderful it was really 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 a pleasure and an honor thank you so much
0: Thank you for listening to Uncertain Things. Follow us on uncertain.substack.com or wherever you get your podcast. We're UncertainPod on the social media. And if you're feeling generous, please give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, if that's your device of choice. Share us with your friends and enemies. And until next time, stay sane.